One of the first things that a enemy force does when they capture one of their enemies is they will imprison them and begin to ration their food. They'll, they'll begin to lower their caloric intake, get them to the point to where they are more susceptible to maybe divulging secrets or letting them know what the plans are uh, of the other side. And, and that starving isn't a complete starving. They give them something to keep them going, but it's just enough to string them along so that hopefully they can get the information that they need out of them. Or even better, that they can break them and turn them to the other side. And many times in churches, that same thing happens. Pastors give the church just enough to feel like they got something. But then whenever calamity hits, whenever a trial hits they find that they don't really have anything to hold on to. Anything of real substance and, and value to help them continue. And many of you probably know people who spent decades, maybe years, in churches all to just have something bad happen. And at the first time of a, of a serious trial or health issue, I don't even know if I believe in God anymore. That's a sign of a malnourished Christian. And Paul doesn't want the Colossian church to be malnourished. And so Paul is going to help us to see in the rest of chapter 1, I'm, I'm going to be covering verses 24 through 29 this morning in chapter 1. He's going to be helping us to see what it looks like to have a pastor who's feeding the sheep who's feeding the church. And he's going to do that by way of a personal testimony. He's just going to be, he, he's not trying to give us, here, here's things to look for. But based on what Paul is telling us about himself, it helps us this morning to know what to look for in a pastor. And so in some ways, this message is directed to ministers. But in other ways, it's directed to everyone who sits under a minister to help you to know what kind of minister you need to sit under. And Jamie gave me the text, and I texted him about Tuesday, and I said, man, I'm, I'm up to seven points already, and I'm not even halfway through. I'm going to have to break this text up. So I'm going to get to chapter 2, the first part of that, next week. But I want to look at seven marks. I tried to do nine, but I could only find seven in the text, so... Um, that's a pastor's joke that like two of you got, <laughs> but you know who you are. Um, but there are seven marks of a pastor and, and Paul again is, is getting very personal here as he's trying to encourage the readers, encourage the church at Colossae and Laodicea, whoever else reads this letter church on the way this morning to encourage us to remain steadfast in our faith in the midst of trials and tribulation. And he highlights kind of seven marks of, of what it means to be a true minister of Jesus Christ. And through his example, Paul shows us how to be firmly established in our faith and not to be moved away from the hope of the gospel. So for the sake of time, let me jump into number one. The first mark of a minister is his status. 
his status. If you're taking notes, the first mark is his status. And this actually comes from the end of verse 23. Paul mentioned how Christ had reconciled us through his death. And he goes on to say in verse 23, the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister of the gospel. It's the good news message of Jesus in the life, death, and, and resurrection. It's, it's the victory over sin, the work of redemption and reconciliation. It's a, it's a message of how Jesus can save and transform sinners. And it really is good news for all this morning. And it was designed, this message was designed to go out to all people. And in large measure, it had already done so because of the work of the Apostle Paul. He had been preaching and teaching everywhere in the known world. And just like in the church in Colossae, where Paul hadn't been yet, Paul told someone who then went to that church, right? Epaphras heard Paul and said, hey, this is a great message. It needs to be shared. He went back to his hometown and started telling everybody until a church sprung up. So so the work of Paul in this time is beginning to send out all of these missionaries into every part of the known world at that time to share the message of the gospel. He had taken it far and wide in the known world. And he had been proclaiming this message that there's only one true God and he's perfectly revealed in Jesus Christ Bradley did a great job last week of explaining that truth to us of how Jesus Christ is the the physical embodiment the the visible picture of the invisible God and there's good news in that message that Jesus came to die on a cross so that we might be forgiven of our sins and reconciled to God But it's bad news for those who want to hold on to their sin. Many, though, came to believe in this message. And and in spite of all of the different hardships and opposition that Paul faced, shipwrecks and trials, being stoned, Paul kept on going, spreading the message everywhere he went. Why? What, What drove him? Well, to put it simply... He was a minister of the gospel. That's what it says right there at the end of verse 23, right? That he was a minister of the gospel. And he's talking about the gospel and he says, I, Paul, was made a minister. Notice how he's getting personal with the Colossians. This is not theoretical or theological. Paul is saying, no, this is is something very personal to me. I, I was made a minister of the gospel. This was his whole identity. This was his status, if you will. This is the minister's status. It's it's one of being a servant. Now, the word minister used here literally just means servant. The, The Greek word was originally used during this time for someone who waited tables. So so in, in our modern day English, we would say that he was a waiter, right? He was, he was the person who was doing table service, coming in and cleaning up behind you at breakfast this morning and taking your plates to the trash. 
And I think it's actually a perfect picture of what the word means and what it means to be a minister. Now today, our English word minister has a lot of very religious overtones, right? But what if we just started calling elders and pastors waiters instead? I mean, men love titles and and honor and prestige and they they want to be called all these things right call me bishop call me reverend call me archbishop call me whatever how about instead we just called them waiters early on that's what the word minister communicated the the to minister meant to serve And, and the minister's status is that of a servant leader This term came to be associated with those who serve in the church, meeting material needs of others. So this word became a technical term that we now transliterate into the word deacon. That's where the word deacon comes from. It refers to those who serve with their hands. But understand that elders and pastors, even apostles like Paul, anyone who ministers the gospel likewise is a servant. They, they may not be devoted to meeting the material, physical needs of the body of Christ. That emphasis is of the deacons. But their job is meant to, the, to, to be the servant of the spiritual needs of the body. And, and in that regard, they're servants nonetheless. They are servants, literally, of the gospel. In 1 Timothy 1-2, he says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. That's important for us to keep in the front of our minds, both those of us who lead and those who follow, that that ministers are primarily servants. Even Christ did not come to be served, but to serve. Mark 10, 45. He tells us, Greatness in his kingdom looks like service, like sacrificially laying down your life for others. The church nowadays needs fewer men interested in titles and selfish gain and personal ambition and making a name for themselves or or, or who see the church as just a, a means of filling their pockets. Instead, we need more who are humble, sacrificial and Christ like servants. And those are the men that God uses to harvest his fields. Again, for Paul, this, is, this service was personal. It was special. And, and we're all called to serve the Lord Jesus Christ this morning. But some are called by God for, as special servants or ministers of the gospel. And, and this is Paul. And for now, Paul wants the Colossians to know that though he did not minister the gospel directly to them personally, his whole identity is wrapped up in being a servant of the gospel. And so he exists to serve them. Even though he wasn't the one that took the gospel to them, he wants them to know, I am your servant too. He's not coming in there heavy-handed going, I'm the apostle, let me tell you how to do things. He's starting by saying, no, I am a servant of the gospel to you. In fact, he's already served them in a way you might not expect, in a way you might not even think about. His service on their behalf included suffering. He's already suffered on their behalf, and this leads to the second mark of a true minister this morning. 
Secondly, the minister is suffering. The second mark of a minister is suffering. Look at verse 24. Now I rejoice in my suffering for your sake. And in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. A part of being a minister means suffering on behalf of the church. Now, before we unpack this verse, though, you may have some questions about this verse. And this verse is well known for its interpretive challenges and all the questions that Paul seems to create here. Some of those questions might be, how can Paul suffer on behalf of the Colossians whom he never met? How can he suffer on behalf of the whole church? What's lacking in Christ's affliction? In what way is it lacking? Here he, he's saying that they're lacking. And now, how can Paul fill up that lack? Is he saying that it's up to us to complete the sufferings of Jesus in some way? Is that what he means? It leads to a lot of questions. And let's start with what it does not mean. It's very clear that Paul is not saying that the redemptive suffering of Jesus was incomplete. He's not saying the atonement was not finished and as if it's up to Paul and other people to finish the job that Jesus couldn't quite get done. That's not what he's saying. And this is important to point out because it's verses like these that have been misinterpreted and lead to all kinds of false teaching. In fact, the very verse, this very verse has been used to support the Roman Catholic view of the treasury of merit. If you've never heard of that, they believe that the, the saving merits of Jesus that he earned entered into this treasury. And it's on the basis of these merits that they are pulled out and applied so that a sinner can be forgiven of his sins and reconciled to God. And, and in the Roman Catholic view, Christ's merits are supremely valuable. But he's not the only one contributing to the treasury. Now the treasury of merit also includes the prayers and the good works of the Virgin Mary and all the saints. So all the good deeds and all the sufferings of holy men, they've been added and contributed to the treasury of merit that's been applied to sinners to forgive them. This heresy later gave rise to the sale of indulgences. That's where you could gain access to the treasury of merits by paying some money. And these ideas are all completely unbiblical. And they actually use verse 24 here to support as if Paul was meritously suffering on behalf of the church. He was, he was putting in some deposits, if you will, into the treasury of merit. But if you were here last week and heard Bradley's sermon, think back to verses 20 through 23. He literally just finished saying, Christ and Christ alone has reconciled all things. He's made complete peace by the blood of the cross. And his atonement was paid in full. Remember when he cried, it is finished. There is nothing left to pay. The debt of our sin was completely paid for by Jesus. 
And you can't contribute one thing to that work. Paul's not suggesting that his suffering contributed to the work of the cross. And the whole New Testament teaches the sufficiency of Christ's death. And that if you add any work to Christ's work, you then have a false gospel. And that's what Paul was all about trying to confront with this Colossian heresy, right? The Colossian heresy was denying Christ and his sufficiency to save. And Paul's not agreeing with them here. So what is he talking about? What does this verse mean? Well, the answer comes from understanding the nature of Paul's sufferings. He's clearly talking about his own personal physical suffering, right? We see that in verse 24. He says, these are the sufferings in the flesh. You see that? that? That's clear. But how can that be? Well, that's actually simple enough. Paul was often made to suffer physically simply on account of being a minister of the gospel and a minister of God's church. Much of the affliction that he received wasn't personal. In other words, Paul wasn't walking around being a jerk of a person and people were like, oh, we're going to stone you. That's not what was happening. Paul was going around preaching the gospel, confronting their sin. And they didn't like it because they liked their sin more than they liked God. And so he suffered on behalf of the gospel that he was preaching. It it came on behalf of his identity, his status as a minister. Paul was made to suffer just by the virtue of being the spiritual father of all these churches. He was their minister. And so a lot of the hatred that was directed to Christ and the church fell on Paul. Paul relates his sufferings to Christ's afflictions, which means the pressures of life that squeeze us, the the evil that oppress us. We're, We're talking about affliction or tribulation or trouble which pertains to Christ and intensifies for those who are ministers of Christ. Didn't Jesus promise that for his disciples? Remember John 15, 18? If the world hates you, know that it it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I choose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Now that Christ is gone, the world directs its hatred toward the church. And so these are the afflictions that are of Christ, the afflictions that pertain to Christ. And they're lacking in the sense that the world hasn't gotten its fill yet. They hadn't gotten its fill of showing Christ and his people their hatred. And it will not until Christ returns. You know, all Jesus did was preach the good news of God's grace and love to people. And that message confronted them over their sin, but then gave them the answer for that sin. It was, he didn't just stop there and go, oh, you're a sinner, you're a horrible person. He said, but, but here's a way to fix it. I've got the solution. But still they hated him because they loved their sin. 
Ministers are called to do the same thing, to preach that message. This is simply a master's lot to suffer for preaching that message. And again, I think it's important for all Christians, but especially for ministers to have this perspective. Because if you don't know that suffering, that picking up your cross comes with the territory of following Christ and ministering Christ, it's going to lead to compromise. And as you preach Christ, even if that is just you sharing the gospel with your neighbors, those of you who aren't ministers, what do you do when you receive affliction or persecution because of it? When the heat turns up, are you willing to suffer for Christ and his gospel? Even if it's just ridicule. I don't want you to compromise because you're not willing to suffer for Christ and his gospel. And it doesn't always have to be physical. Sometimes we're just talking about suffering that's shame or or ridicule or scorn. Maybe, Maybe it's just the loss of your reputation in the world. But we need ministers who are not ashamed of the gospel. And they will keep ministering the gospel for the sake of the church. Paul didn't rejoice when his suffering was over. He rejoiced in the midst of his suffering. And this confronts each of us this morning. Most of us view any kind of suffering or affliction as the end of the world. I hear people all the time, oh, I'm under attack. (laughs) When's it going to end? This problem, this problem, this problem. And we treat it like it's the worst thing that could happen. In our generation, it leads to uh, depression, despair, angerness, bitterness, resentfulness toward God. But not not Paul. (laughs) It led to rejoicing. He didn't view suffering as a problem that must be escaped at all costs. We, we live in a time of great ease. And anytime things are hard, we want it to be easy again. Instead, Paul accepted it as one part of living in a fallen world and part of picking up your cross and following Jesus. But the fact that we can suffer with a purpose, that, that as we suffer and endure, we can hold out the gospel to others, that can give us joy. But the true minister is one who's counted that cost and accepted it. There are going to be people who say ugly things about you. There are going to be people who write blogs or Start a podcast and talk about how horrible you are. That's a part of the process. That, that's just something we have to accept. Sharing the gospel. And again, I want to be clear about this. This is not me going out being jerky <laughs> and offensive and stupid. And then, oh, I'm getting, I'm getting suffering. No, this is me sharing the gospel consistently, faithfully, loving people and still getting it thrown back in my face. That, that's a part of being a minister of God. But that's also each and every one of you are called to be ministers of God as well. 
And this is part of counting the cost of ministering the gospel. Whether you're a pastor or not, even if you're an everyday church member, you're still a minister of the gospel as you share and witness the gospel. That's the second mark of a minister, suffering. Number three, Paul says the minister is a steward. Minister's status, the minister's suffering, and now the minister as a steward. Let's go to verse 25. Of this church has made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit. Paul pivots here and adds the fact that not only was he made a servant of the gospel, verse 23, but he's also made a servant or minister of the church. And of course, these things go together. You're serving Christ and the church, but, but Paul adds here the dimension of stewardship over the household of God. And a steward refers to a household manager. A wealthy person might have a steward if he wanted to spend his time doing other things, the steward would take care of the house and make sure everything that was needed was there when it was needed, right? My mind always kind of goes to the character Higgins in Magnum P.I., and thankfully they rebooted it, so some of you young people can still get that reference, right? You never see the rich owner of this fancy property. You just see Higgins. He's the steward of the property. He might as well be the owner, but he's not the owner, right? He's in charge. He can make decisions, but he's not the ultimate owner of the property, The steward would do everything from finances to daily operations, the maintenance, overseeing the other workers, and so forth. And as you can imagine, this was an important position of great trust and responsibility. This provides another fitting image of the minister. The Colossian church was not Paul's church. No church was Paul's church, for that matter. No church belongs to any pastor or minister. This is not my church. It doesn't matter that I was here and and helped found it and plan it. It's not the pastor's church. It's Christ's church. It belongs to him. The minister is merely the household steward for just a short period of time in the grand scheme of things. Even if we're here 50 years. That's a short amount of time in the grand scheme of things. But we're here to care for the flock until the master returns. And the master will return and the stewards will have to give account. As I can imagine the shame of a steward who acted like the house belonged to him. Ministers are employed by God and his house to do his bidding for his glory, not their own. And this stewardship is not for personal gain of the minister. It's for the benefit of the whole body, Paul says. You see that in verse 25. He says that this stewardship is for your benefit. Overseeing the flock, the work of the ministry, it's for the benefit of the church. And this fits the, with the minister's primary task of feeding the flock by giving them the whole counsel of the word of God by which they might grow. And this leads us to mark number four this morning. The fourth mark of a true minister is the minister's subject. Look at what he says in Verse 25 of this church. I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. So Paul has told us he's a servant. 
and that he's a steward. Both are great illustrations. And so you have these two images and they help to paint a picture of what a true minister should look like. A servant and a steward. But at the same time, they're just analogies, right? Because in reality, God doesn't expect ministers to literally go and wait tables. Or to physically manage a property. That's not actually the job description of a minister or a pastor, right? It's just an analogy. So what then is the real job or job description of the minister? What's the primary task? In what way is he to serve and steward the church? And Paul reflects the answer in his own personal testimony. In verse 25, he says, he was made a minister. He was made a steward. Why? Verse 25, so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. And that's the real subject of a true minister in his ministry. He has to occupy himself with preaching the preaching of the word of God. And specifically, Paul talks about fully carrying out the preaching of the word of God. The Greek, in, in the Greek, it literally says to make full the word of God. To make full the word of God is not talking about adding to the word of God, even though God does use Paul under the inspiration to add to the scriptures. Instead, it's talking about making the word fully known. That the subject of a, of a minister's ministry is the word of God. He's to make that word fully known in depth, width, and breadth. This means he has to communicate the whole counsel of the whole word of God. To all who cross his path. This is his job. His his duty received from the Lord himself. And the apostle Paul was faithful in this ministry. Preaching the word. Especially back then. Came with such a great cost. And a lot of people didn't like what he he had to say. And they were happy to shoot the messenger. So, So preaching the word came with affliction and suffering. But Paul just kept going. He didn't stop. And he said this of his ministry amidst much suffering in Acts 20, 24. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Paul was so sold out to preaching the gospel of grace of God that he counted his own life as nothing. Even if preaching cost him suffering, affliction, maybe some lost friendships, lost opportunities, whatever, it didn't matter. All that mattered was that he was finishing the course. He had a ministry given to him by the Lord, and he had to fulfill that ministry. This is the subject of all ministers preaching the word, and it comes from the Lord himself. I heard a pastor once use this illustration, and I found it helpful. I'm going to paraphrase it to the best of my memory. He said, imagine if you owned a food truck because you loved food and cooking and serving people with high-quality food, so you wanted to start this little business so that you could go around and you could just serve the best food possible. So you work and you perfect the menu, you get all the right ingredients, you get all the signage for the food truck and the the business takes off and for a year straight you are working in this food truck every week, every weekend. 
And you finally decide it's time to take a family vacation. I haven't spent time with the family. I need to unplug for a minute and go spend some time with the family. And so you ask two people that work for you. Say, hey, would you be willing to run the food truck for three weeks while I take my family on vacation? But while you're gone, you come back and you, you find that the food truck has been transformed into a horse trailer for hauling horses back and forth to shows. And the owner asks the employees, what, what happened to my food truck? And the employees explained that they had this idea for how to make a lot more money. We got this big trailer and there's all these rich people who just want their horses moved from place to place. And it's, it's so much easier work and we can make so much more money doing this. Now, as the owner, how would you react? I mean, if your goal was simply to make money, I guess you might be very interested in this new idea. But making money is not your passion. Your passion is food. That's why you got into the food truck business to start with. To serve the best food possible. You have this reputation that you've built. You've worked hard to build that reputation. It doesn't make much sense to let the staff make these kinds of decisions, does it? That should be the owner's call, right? The employee's job is to fulfill the owner's mission. Now, it's kind of a ridiculous illustration, I know, but hopefully you can see how similar it is to the job of ministers to feed the people. They're commissioned by God to be like spiritual chefs called to prepare and serve a feast of God's word. The finest meal possible. And it's a never-ending job because you guys are always hungry. You, you, you never preach to the fill and be like, all right, I'm done. I can quit now. Right? This is extensive work because the Bible's a big book. I, I have an Excel spreadsheet of all the books we've preached through. Looking forward to the day, hopefully, if the Lord wills it, that I get to preach through them all. And the minister is not simply to serve up his favorite dishes. But to give the people the full menu. The whole counsel of the word of God. This is what God wants. This is what the owner has said to do in his church. But sadly, many ministers have given up on that. They decided to forsake this mission for something else. Thinking they can be more successful. That they could get more people, make more money if they did things a little different. And currently that's why a lot of churches feel like concert halls or talent shows. It's just so much more successful. It's going to get a lot more people in the door. But again, it's not up to the minister, the servant to change things. We're just the steward. This is not our food truck. This is not our church. And we don't get to make those decisions. Our job is to, to, to simply fulfill the owner's wishes. And that primarily involves for the church the preaching of the word of God. And if you change that, 
Or if you water that down, or if you forsake that, you might succeed here on this planet. But you can expect nothing but rebuke and even judgment from the owner or the master when he shows up. Like Paul said, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. When we fail to preach the gospel, the flock doesn't benefit. The flock gets starved when the minister forsakes his mission. And you might not be a teacher or preacher this morning, but don't you think all this means that you better put yourself under faithful preaching of the word? Do you want to be starved? Some of you have been starved before. You felt that you were entertained. And and the, the content at whatever church you may have been at for many years felt like you were getting something, but at the same time, you, you just always felt hungry. There, there was always something missing. And unbeknownst to you, you were spiritually starving. And your weakness eventually showed itself, typically during a time of trial or testing, and you had no spiritual strength to fall back on. The good news this morning is the Lord knows what he's doing and his will is good. And he knows that it is best for you to feed often on the pure milk of the word. So that by it you might grow in respect to your salvation and your sanctification. Look again at verse 27. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this ministry, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. The mystery he's talking about here, which is now revealed, is that it's not just Christ, it's Christ in you, the hope of glory. Not just Christ with you, not Christ for you, but here it's Christ in you. The mystery is revealing the truth of our union with Christ. That by faith the believer is united to Christ. Like a husband and a wife in marriage and by virtue of that union all the benefits of salvation flow to us. Right, it's, it's like if you were to marry a wealthy person and instantly you're added to their bank account. Guess what? You're now wealthy. <laughs> right? It's, it's instantaneous. You now have access to everything they have access to. That, that's what our salvation looks like. As it goes with Christ. That in Christ we gain access to the account of full righteousness. Perfect righteousness. Now, That's ours because we're in him and he is in us. We're united. But on top of that, and admittedly in somewhat of a mysterious sense, scripture says how the Lord comes to dwell in and among his people. This is what all the Lord's promises that things like John 14, 23, he mentioned how he was going to depart That both he and the Father would come and make their home with the disciples. We know that's fulfilled through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit who brings a triune God into our present. But 
But likewise, Ephesians 3.17 says that Christ comes to dwell in your hearts through faith. And Christ himself comes to dwell in your hearts through faith like the Old Testament made clear that the Messiah is coming. But it never said anything about the fact that, that he would be in his redeemed people. Who, by the way, were made up mostly of us Gentiles. These were mind-blowing truths. But they're encouraging truths. They were a mystery to the people of the Old Testament, but they are revealed to us in the New Testament. Because Christ in us equals the hope of glory. The the presence of the indwelling Christ assures us of a future glory. Romans 8.10 says, If Christ is in you, know the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. Those who experience the new birth in Christ have the hope of glory. That though the outer man is to king, we have a new life, an eternal life. We're fellow heirs with Christ. We will be glorified with him. And we're sure of this because Christ is in us. And we are in him this morning. So if we bring this back to our text in Colossians and boil it down again, Paul is saying, as the minister's main subject is the word of God. The word of God, the word of God's main subject is Christ. These go hand in hand. So if a minister is to be one who preaches the word of God well, you must obviously therefore be one who preaches the incarnate word of God. Christ is the one whom all scripture is about. He must be one who preaches Christ. Like verse 28 says, we proclaim him, that's what we do. Then we preach Christ. Accept no substitutes. Don't don't accept a a single substitute. Don't, Don't accept any other meal. No other meal will suffice. God has revealed the mysteries of Christ, the Savior, so that his people might be saved and reconciled this morning. This morning, I hope and pray that you consistently find yourself under the preaching of the word of God, that that you are not being starved and entertained to death. Because I promise you, if you're not there today, there is coming a day of trials, testing, that you are going to need to be able to hold on to something. And Christ is the only thing able to save. And if you are not hearing him preach consistently, feeding upon the word of God consistently, then when that time comes, you are going to find yourself struggling. Maybe even walking away from God, as many do nowadays. Because they didn't have a foundation. They didn't have the chief cornerstone, Jesus Christ, to build upon. Their whole life was built on shifting sands of different forms of entertainment instead of the solid foundation of the Word of God. We don't want you to starve this morning. 
Let's pray. Father, as we come now to feast upon the Lord's Supper, we celebrate the incarnate Word of God. Lord, we, we take the bread and the wine into our bodies as a symbolic act of you being in us, Lord. Just reminding us of this truth this morning that you are in us and we are in you. Lord, may this be a time of celebration for us that know you. And Father, for those who don't, I pray that this would be an invitation to put their life and their trust and their hope in you and you alone. So that they too may know what it means to have Christ in them. Father, prepare our hearts this morning. If we've been entertained, amused, distracted, whatever it is, Lord, that, that has kept us from feasting on your word of God. Lord, I pray this morning you would help us to see that. Your Holy Spirit would convict us, would show us whatever it is that is distracting us from you and your word. And Lord, we wouldn't leave here depressed and discouraged. Instead, we would confess and repent and leave here celebrating the grace that we are extended through what Jesus Christ did on the cross. And that we would come this morning and celebrate that as we partake of the Lord's Supper. Taking the bread that represents his body and dipping it into the wine that represents his blood that was shed for us this morning. Father, thank you for not only confronting us about our sin, but giving us the solution to our sin. It's in Christ's name I pray all these things.